Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Katia Penzar is a Helsinki-based writer, editor, and broadcast journalist. Raised in Canada with stints in New Zealand and the UK, Katia writes on a variety of topics ranging from well-being and mental health to sustainability, social issues, inclusivity, design, travel, and business. She is currently working on her second book about Sisu, a unique Finnish form of grit in the face of challenges, big and small. Everyday Sisu, tapping into Finnish fortitude for a happier, more resilient life, will be published by Penguin Random House US in February 2022. It's a follow-up to her first Sisu book, The Finnish Way, Finding Courage, Wellness, and Happiness Through the Power of Sisu, which was published in 22 territories around the world during 2018 and 2019 and translated into 20 different languages. She has been a regular contributor to Blue Wings, the in-flight magazine of Finnair, and worked as a freelance broadcast journalist, TV, radio, and web at the Finnish Public Broadcasting Corporation and as an occasional Helsinki correspondent for Monocle 24. Her articles have appeared in newspapers ranging from the Globe and Mail to magazines such as Elle. Katia is also the author of two guidebooks to the Finnish capital Helsinki by Light and 100 Things to Do in Helsinki. Katia holds a master's degree in international journalism from the City University of London and a bachelor's degree in communication from Simon Fraser University in Canada. All right, Katia Penzar, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks so much for uh, joining me from uh, from Finland. I believe we have a seven-hour time difference that we've had to navigate to get together to have this conversation. Is that correct? That's right. It's about uh, it's afternoon here, and um, it's uh, Midsummer Eve. We're coming up to the solstice, so a very hot and bright time of the year. It sure is. Uh, I've had the pleasure of visiting Finland a number of times. Uh, my brother-in-law is a Finn. And so I, I believe if I added it all up, I would have spent maybe in excess of a month in Finland. And we've been able to be there exactly at this time, typically the first two weeks of July. And, uh, you know, I, I'm going to bring this up later, but I think everyone should get a chance to experience nearly 24-hour daylight. There's something very special about uh, the vibe that comes along with that. So I'll, I'll really want to sort of maybe dig in on on your experience of that and how it factors into the the Finnish mindset. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. It is a, a gorgeous amount of time. And uh, then you're almost a Finn if you've spent uh, time here. <laughs> I've been told I'm an honorary Finn. And I believe I've logged the appropriate number of hours in the in the sauna or the sauna, as I should say, to, to qualify. But uh, I'm still waiting for the certificate, but I imagine it's in the mail. Okay, well, I'll see if I can talk to some people. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, I, I want to start with. <laughs> I, I want to throw this question your 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 way. You know, it's funny. I, I mentioned that I've been in Finland a number of times. Why is it that within five minutes of getting together with a group of men, that I find myself naked, consuming alcohol, and in a hot room? <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you've had the true Finnish experience, uh, which is probably the sauna, and or the sauna, as we say, and. Um, always followed by uh, drinks, usually beer and other drinks. And uh, of course, nudity is uh, people who feel uncomfortable with it can wrap a towel around themselves or wear their swimmers in the sauna are uh, quintessential 
finish steam bath, but we usually go naked um, because the idea is there's a kind of equality, but also purity. You know, the sauna is a place where you go to relax, to cleanse, where everybody leaves their titles behind. So we're all equal. Nobody knows whether you drive a BMW or a bicycle or what your job title is. Um, and of course, alcohol is also something that <laughs> is very popular in Finland, uh, especially this time of year with midsummer, a lot of parties going on. And I actually just read there's an old saying that um, the more you drink at midsummer, the better your crop will be. Of course, this goes back a long way because <laughs> most people don't have crops anymore, but uh, perhaps that attitude has uh, stayed. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the the comfort with nudity is something that I think would be in contrast to the experience of a lot of North Americans. Uh, you, you know, I've been very struck by that. And when I've had uh, my brother-in-law visit, you know, uh, his family's comfort with nudity, say down on the dock at the lake is very different from, you know, what it would be for the other residents of the lake. So there's an interesting kind of cultural, not, I wouldn't say cultural tensions, but cultural norms that, that uh, I've really been able to observe. Yeah, I think it's also something very liberating because I grew up in Canada, um, in North America, and I've lived in the UK and New Zealand. And the UK is also another place where <laughs> public nudity is not, I mean, in the appropriate place, like a sauna or lakeside is not something that you see. And uh, initially, I found it quite difficult. You know, I felt kind of awkward and uncomfortable in the sauna. But I quickly realized that it wasn't really about me. Nobody cared what I looked like. Everybody has their own body issues, but also um, it's it's about kind of accepting everybody as they are. And you realize bodies come in all shapes and sizes, and that's perfectly normal and natural. And uh, I would say too, that uh, there's kind of a liberation there. For example, I live in very central Helsinki and I go for a swim a couple of times a day now because it's really hot and it's a great break during work. Um, there's a dock, an old traditional rug washing dock, which uh, the swimmers have taken over. And every now and then there's someone who's forgotten their swimmers. And it's just like, so not a big deal. Like nobody, nobody really cares. <laughs> and uh, I find that very, very liberating, especially when we, you know, think about mental and physical health, that idea that you're accepted as you are. And there, there, there isn't that there's less of pressure to be a certain body type, but also something very important. It's more about we and the cultural norms than me, which is, I think, a very big difference from many cultures. No, it's such a great point. And I agree that sense of like sort of, I'm going to use an old school psychological term, but dropping the neuroses, you know, about the human body and appearance, it is, it is very liberating ultimately. Very, very liberating. And I think a lot of people's um, anxieties, I'm not going to say that all, all mental health issues, but a lot of anxieties stem from the fact that we have these notions of how we should look or that we should have, you know, Instagram bodies and, you know, perfect outfits and so on. And, and that's not the case and that's not the reality. And I think that when you are able to enjoy a place where you're accepted as you are, that makes a really big impact on, on both your mental and your physical health. No, absolutely. And, and again, you know, where we're going to take the conversation is very much looking at how the Finnish or perhaps more broadly Nordic lifestyle contributes to well-being. There's one more little funny finishism that I want to sneak in here. Uh, <laughs> my my brother-in-law, Jukka, uh, he, he introduced this term to me. I think I'll get, I'll try to get the pronunciation correct. Kalsarikunit. 
the feeling when you are going to get drunk home alone in your underwear with no intention of going out. <laughs> Please explain. Like, there's something so delightfully and uniquely Finnish uh, about this. I love it. Yeah. Well, essentially, um, I think Kalsari Kannit, you did a very good pronunciation, is pants drunk. And the idea is that, you know, you come home and you open a bottle and you are maybe sitting in your underwear, most likely in your underwear on the couch or wherever <laughs> by yourself. And you have a couple of drinks. And I think it taps into many things, including the fact that Finns are known to be um what would I say? What would be the the correct term? I mean, I think socially isolated can give the wrong term because yes, that can that can lead to other things. But I, I think Finns are very happy, many of them being sort of lone wolves and doing things on their own. And uh, the idea for that book just basically arose out of a joke, like let's, oh, this is this sort of cultural phenomenon that we have. And uh, I've actually been on several panels, including at the Frankfurt Book Fair with the author, Miska Randanen, and this idea of, you know, Sisu, Finnish fortitude, what I write about, and, you know, yeah. these other issues. And then, you know, the lighter side of Finnish life, which is basically getting pissed in your underwear <laughs> at home alone, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. No, I, I was just so struck by the sort of, the, the, there's a whimsicalness to that uh, that image that I find to be uh, very endearing. Yeah, and I think it's one of these, there's so many quirky aspects to, I think, any culture, but it's one of the quirky Finnish-isms, if you could say. Absolutely. Okay, so what's the origin story of how life took you to Finland? You've alluded to living different places, and you, know, you allude to, to this in the book, but just for the listener, what brought you from A to B? on this? Well, essentially I was living in Toronto and, or Toronto, <laughs> as you should say, if you're from Canada. <laughs> and, um, I, I was, uh, I was working in a book publishing and I grew up in Vancouver on the West coast and uh, had worked in Toronto for many years and had a lot of great opportunities there. Um, but shortly after I think nine 11, I started really questioning, you know, a lot of things and had this idea in my mind that, wait a minute, um, you know, what if I went to, I have this Finnish passport, what if I went to Europe, you know, just for a year and uh, got to know the, the European, the Finnish lifestyle, you know, was able to travel and see, this is of course pre-pandemic when <laughs> traveling was slightly a different, uh, different type of activity. Um, and this desire to kind of learn and know more and experience more. I, I felt that there was this whole world out there that I still hadn't seen, even though at that point I had traveled, you know, a fair amount. And um, I, I was just very lucky. I happened to find a job where they were looking for an English language editor and writer. And the job description said, you know, must be willing to edit, write and travel. And it turned out to be Blue Wings, the in-flight magazine for Finnair. And I just thought, oh my goodness, this is a perfect job. Like I want to go back into writing more. I want to, you know, travel, see the world. And I thought I was just going to brush up on my Finnish culture, but actually I realized how little I knew when I moved to Finland because we had visited and I had spent little patches of time, but I really didn't understand, you know, the, the in-depthness and all the aspects of Finnish culture and perhaps a lot of things I had dismissed, you know, my parents had certain values and ways of thinking 
And because I had grown up in North America, I, I had the North American perspective, like, you know, the idea, for example, that having a car is the only way to get around and, you know, moving to Finland and realizing a lot of people choose not to have a car so they can bike or walk places and live close to where they need to go. Um, a lot of things like that really surprised me. And I also got a, a big education, which I'm still getting, thankfully, you know, learning new things all the time. Um, not just about Finland, but about the world and, um, you know, through the job and through all the things that have happened since. And then I, what happened is I ended up falling in love with the Finnish lifestyle and staying. <laughs> I, it was only supposed to be for a year or two. Yeah. Katia, in the book, you speak very openly about um, your struggle with depression and I always really appreciate when people are vulnerable around those kind of issues because we need to talk about these and normalize and validate them and, and understand that depression and anxiety are, are part of the human experience. And the less that we can pathologize these things and understand them is often, you know, normal and expected reactions to some of the circumstances in life that, that can evolve, the, you know, the, the better. Uh, and it really sort of sets the stage for you, you know, outlining some of the aspects of Nordic life that promote well-being. So can you maybe elaborate on this piece a little bit from your lived experience, how your own sort of uh, experience with depression dovetailed with your discovery uh, or renaissance around your, your Finnish background? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I really strongly believe, um, you know, if I can help other people by sharing my story, then I've, I've done I've done my job. And I think that, um, where should I start? I guess what I will start with is that, yeah, I mean, I have a long history of depression and anxiety that goes back to childhood. I think it may be partly genetic, but I think it also stems from possibly um, not realizing that I could do a lot of things to um, help, but also to actually prevent really bad episodes of depression or, or even anxiety. And some of the key things that I, I learned, which seems so simple in hindsight, um, were elements of the Nordic lifestyle um, that range from, from diet. And by that, I mean, no crash diets or crazy, you know, programs or, you know, where people do things, they only eat one food or they, they starve themselves. Um, you know, this idea, you eat a healthy, balanced uh, meal well, several meals, hopefully every day, but, uh, you know, there's, a, there's in Finland, there's this tradition of, um, the, the lunch, the real lunch, you know, a few different warm mains, salad, bread, soup, coffee, um, you know, and this idea that everybody has a nourishing meal, whether it's at school or work or, or even in restaurants throughout the country, um, and really paying attention to just eating normally and sensibly, um, then there were things like realizing that, for example, biking year round is very, very easy in Finland, even when it's minus 20, because there's dedicated bike lanes. Uh, it's really just a matter of dressing properly. And I realized this was just a great way to manage my anxiety and my overall physical health. So, you know, if I don't have time to go to some sort of a, a yoga class or whatever, uh, I've already gotten my exercise by biking to and from work. Um, let's say on an average day, um, that would be about 10 kilometers altogether. So nothing, you know, no great marathon or anything like that. Uh, and it was just a matter of, you know, getting organized. So I have my winter biking clothes and, and then, you know, have a change of clothes in a pannier or my knapsack, uh, wherever it is that I'm going to work. 
and realizing uh, there's a lot of data on this and a lot of studies on, on just, you know, the simple workout that you get, you're, you're out in nature, you're outdoors, you're breathing fresh air, you know, in the morning you wake up and on the way home, you pedal away your stress, maybe even go through a green space like a forest or a park. Um, and then one of my really, really huge, huge discoveries that was sort of like, wow, um, it's very obvious to people who who have practiced it for a long time, but was winter swimming, which is essentially going for a dip during the winter months in water that's about one to four degrees Celsius uh, in in a in a hole that's carved into a lake or the sea, uh, because most years they're frozen during the winter months, and really a dip of thirty seconds to one minute, which is a very short time. Uh, gives you this amazing boost of it's this like happiness rush because all the endorphins kick in the happy hormones, uh, dopamine, oxytocin, um, you know, the, the blood starts pumping. There's all these spin-off effects. And I just realized I had this technique that, you know, if I did this every day, not only was it kind of a preventative measure, but also I started to use it. Like when I felt really stressed or overwhelmed or even anxious, it was like, okay, just go to the water and just go and have your dip. And you'll run into a few friends and chat and you'll feel like a million bucks afterwards. Funny that I should use a, a monetary a commercial term. You'll feel, <laughs> you'll feel happier than anything and full of joy afterwards. And these sort of simple, almost like life hacks, I would say the cycling and the dipping have been, you know, real, really big, big mood boosters, uh, physical health boosters, you know, and then they kind of open the door to other things like, wait, if I can do this, what else can I do? Because the idea of going for a dip in the water in the middle of the winter, when it's like, you know, minus 10 degrees outside and snowing does not seem sensible or logical but actually it really is and it's actually something in finland that's very popular between you know i would say ages 8 to 80 like it really is very safe unless you have some sort of a heart condition and everyone can do it you know at their own their own level so if you want to go in just for 10 seconds or you want to go in and swim for 2 minutes it's up to you and you're with other people. So there's this social element, you know, you get out of whatever's going on at home or your work stress, and then you're in nature. You have this connection to nature, which we, I think in many, any places around the world have lost. You know, we spend our time going in a tin box to a concrete building that's air conditioned and then to a shopping center that's a box that's air conditioned, you know, and this basic return to the elements to you know, water, air, grass, earth, sky uh, is something that we we really actually need. Oh man, there's so much to unpack here, and I think you've done <laughs> you've done such a nice job of outlining some of what I, you know. I guess what I'm loosely calling the active ingredients in the the Finnish or, or Nordic lifestyle, and I'm going to loop back to a whole bunch of this stuff. Before we get there, though, I want to touch on the idea of sisu. It's a it's a concept that you introduce very early in the book, and then it's sprinkled throughout. 
What is Sisu? What is not Sisu? Is there any sense of how this became a source of national pride? You know, the, the, the Finns have a long relationship with the Russians in terms of managing that dynamic. I'm wondering how much maybe that came into play or, you know, it's a harsh environment in some senses, especially the further north that you go. So anyway, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. What, what is Sisu? Where did it come from? Yeah, that's a very good question. Well, Sisu essentially is a unique form of Finnish fortitude, strength, or grit in the face of challenges, uh, big or small. And the term goes back, I think, um, 500, 600 years, the first references to it uh, as a place in the stomach where strong emotions could be felt. Um, And then in, I would say, during the last hundred years or so, it was very much used as a term to describe um, great victories in war or sport. For example, uh, the Finns holding off the then Russians uh, in in the 1940s in during wartime, essentially it was minus about minus 40 in the northern parts of Finland, and just by having Sisu, this idea that you you tap into some sort of courage and grit and you just keep going, even though you know you might fail, um, they managed to outsmart the Russians who far outnumbered them on all levels, you know, from their military equipment to their manpower in, in terms of numbers. And for example, one of the things the Finns did was they wore white uh, suits over their uniforms so that they were camouflaged into the snow. So that, that to me is a great example of Sisu. It's like you take what you have and then you try to figure out a solution. Um, so rather than wishing, you know, that they had more men or more equipment or it's like, okay, what can we do and how can we try to figure this out? Uh, another example that's often used is um, from, I believe it was the 1972, was 1972 Munich or was it 1976 Olympics? Montreal was 76, so 72 would have been yes. Munich, yes. And uh, La Seviren was a long-distance runner in those Olympics. And during the 10,000-meter race, he essentially fell, and everybody thought, that's it. And not only did he get up and start running again, he went on to win the race and set a new uh, world record. And a lot of people say, this is like... But I think in the modern day context, and especially the research that I've done really recently, uh, because I'm I'm just finishing my second CISO book, which will be published uh, next year, early next year by Penguin Random House. um, It's really, you know, small and big. It doesn't have to be an Olympic victory or a marathon. It can be even the small things in your daily life, like pulling yourself out of bed and saying, okay, I'm going to go for a dip when it's cold and dark and minus 10 outside because you know you're going to feel better and because you know that it's going to set the tone for the day and there's all these benefits from it and it that's the kind of thing too that a lot of swimmers often say you know ah uh, you know you showed a lot of sisu oh that was you know that was sisu today was you know so gray and dark and cold out like we're strong and i think that it can also it it you can use it in, in many contexts. It doesn't have to be physical. It can be, you know, having a difficult conversation with your spouse or your boss, um, doing the thing that you've been putting off because it makes you feel anxious or worried or stressed. Um, just basically 
addressing and approaching and even trying to embrace challenges, whatever they may be. That is Sisu. (laughs) If you take the notion of Sisu and then you combine it with the, again, that sort of Nordic lifestyle, is there any sense where Finland falls on the continuum of well-being as far as nations go? Like, does this... Do these concepts translate into a greater sense of well-being compared to to other countries? Yes, I think they do. I mean, for the fourth year running, Finland has been named the world's happiest country by the UN. And, you know, if you look at the report for the last couple of years, you know, happiness is really comprised of well-being. You know, do people feel safe? Do they feel they have opportunities? Do they feel um, that they're able to live their life according to how they, you know, their dreams. And I think that many of those things are possible um, and they link into, you know, well-being and happiness. Of course, we have, you know, we have healthcare that's almost free. We have education that's almost free. You know, these kinds of things make a very big difference. Um, But also the fact that we have this thing that's called every person's right or every man's right, which means Basically, everybody has access to nature throughout the country. Um, about 70% of Finland is forest, and there are numerous national parks. There's lots of green, you know, in Helsinki, where I live, but throughout the country. And for example, the simple act of going swimming on the dock, which is about two minutes from where I live, in a lot of countries, somebody would own the waterfront. It would be maybe dangerous. The water might not be clean, uh, it, or it might, somebody might charge something for it. You know, there, there would be some limited access. And I think this idea of it's open and it's accessible and it's free to everybody is not only in you know if we think of uh, I think what a lot of people think of traditional well-being, i.e., you know, food getting a a healthy meal for uh, not that much money, Um, being able to walk, swim, uh, do all kinds of things, enjoy nature uh, that's very close to you. So you don't need to travel. You don't need to pay. There's not some kind of a limit or a restriction, you know, i.e. that it's polluted or dangerous or somebody owns the waterfront or whatever. To the practical things of, I often say, you know, if my son is really talented musically, he can go to the the top music school in the country, the Sibelius Academy, because he's talented, not because uh, his parents might know somebody or because there's a lot of money, which there isn't. But, you know, it's something that he's prepped for through private elite schools or, you know, things like that. Most of the education system here is public. Um, this idea of accessibility and everybody having an opportunity and a chance, I think really impacts on well-being. And this idea that we take care of our most vulnerable citizens um, is very, very important when it comes to well-being. It's not something that is only for you know people who, who can afford a special personal trainer or a life coach or a psychiatrist or whatever that what however they define well-being. And it's really what I call a sort of daily or everyday CISO, you know, the things you do every day, deciding to walk or bike to where you need to go rather than driving. Um, You know, so you're getting fresh air, you're exercising, you're also helping your mental health. Um, These types of things, the accessibility and the opportunity is there for so many people. And I think that that is what well-being is about 
um, and other things, you know, like trust, honesty, safety, you know, kids. Uh, my son has been walking to school by himself since he was seven. And of course we live very close to the school. So that's not maybe the best example, but a lot of kids do that throughout the country, you know, whether they need to take a tram or bicycle or something. And I know in many parts of Canada, that's just simply not on, on, on the plate. And that teaches kids resilience, but also, you know, physical activity over being driven somewhere, you know, which is very important when we think about lifestyle and especially as people age, you know, there's all these lifestyle illnesses that, that can are very largely contributed to by inactivity. So I hope that that was quite long. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> no, it sure does. I have a quick comment and then a follow-up question for you. Yeah. Uh, my wife is a teacher and she was telling me that the Finnish public education system is revered internationally yes. and people will often go there for consultation and, and to get advice about how to structure programs. It's just superb uh, yeah. as far as public education goes. Uh, so I just wanted to let the listener know about that. And then I guess my follow-up question is, if someone has a mental health challenge within Finland, what's the state of affairs as far as the you know public support network in in Canada? Uh, a lot of psychologists are exist within a private setting. It's a it's a fee for service environment. Accessibility is a real real challenge, and it's even worse for psychiatry. So the the mental health system is an extremely frustrating system to work in. I, I'm just kind of curious uh, how the Finns have approached this particular conundrum as a society. That's a very good question. I think there are challenges on resources. Um, I have been seeing a lot of articles about the fact that there, there's not enough therapists, there's not enough psychotherapists, there's not enough access to care. However, um, I will say that I have used the system and the public system, um, and I, I have been quite impressed by it. And I do think that they are stretched by the, the limits. And I think particularly the last year, as in many countries, um, has increased the strain on mental health services, uh, partly because so many people have really, really suffered uh, during the past year. But I think also it's been um, kind of a ticking time bomb in that, you know, the statistics about depression around the world, it's just growing and more resources are needed. So I would say on a general level, um, there's work to be done, which is a very Cecil response in that, you know, never rest on your laurels and never say something is, you know, good and good. You always need to keep working. Um, there have been some citizens initiatives to improve the system, uh, but there is the option of getting free therapy and help if you need it, if you can get in. Um, the other thing, if you want to talk about the mental health, um, I'm just working on a section for my next book, which is, I don't know if you happen to read about it, but uh, we had a, a very huge mental health hack where a private healthcare uh, therapy provider, uh, the way the system works is people can get subsidized uh, therapy. They go to the private sector, but part of it is paid for by the public sector. And it was hacked and people were threatened. They were held hostage, people who had been customers or patients of this clinic. And essentially the, the, the situation turned around. This is another good example of CISO2. Finland decided that it wants to be the most therapy positive country in the world. And you know, it's like, no, we're not going to pay these ransoms. And they were directed to private citizens, but also a lot of um, public and private figures came out and said, I've gone to therapy. I'm totally proud of it. Recommend it for everybody. Like, 
this is this is not something to be ashamed of. So the 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 so-called <laughs> attempt to bring down something that some people might feel ashamed of didn't work and actually turned around so that it's like, hey, let's embrace therapy. Let's talk about it more. Let's have more campaigns to talk about mental health and all the things that we can do as human beings on a daily basis, you know, whether it's just asking somebody how they are or, you know, going for a walk or whatever it is. What an interesting and beautiful cultural moment, right? Yeah. At, at, at the level of the individual, like in trauma therapy, we talk a lot about your, uh, you're only as sick as your secrets, right? Because a lot of folks don't want to disclose yeah. what's happened for, for a lot of understandable yeah. reasons, but ultimately to really integrate oneself, you, you know, you have, there, there can only be one of you. There can't be a secret version and then the the public facing, right? Yeah. You know, within reason. So that, I hear a lot of that. That's, that's a really beautiful sort of uh, cultural awakening that happened in that particular instance. Yeah. And very much the message being, and this is something I've also, because in my next book, I look at trauma as well. And uh, talking to a lot of people, one of our kind of, I don't know if it's a national motto, but something that I've really picked up on here is it's okay not to be okay. <laughs> and I think that's really powerful because I think we all struggle. And I think the struggle is even worse if you have to cover it up and pretend that you're doing fabulously, or you have things that you can't talk about or deal with. And I don't mean that you have to tell everybody everything, but learning those kinds of uh, skills, mental health and physical health skills to navigate like, okay, well, I, I feel anxious in those situations. So how can I better deal with them, or maybe I need to resolve this issue that has been troubling me for ages because it's, it's starting to physically make me not feel well. Like the classic, uh, Basil van der Kolk's, the body, is it the, when the, the body remembers? The body keeps the, the score. Body keep, that's exactly the body keeps the score. And this idea of, you know, if you don't deal with it mentally, your body is going to probably, you know, let you know in many ways. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think the psychodynamic folks have lots of interesting things to say on this, right? Like that, which we don't acknowledge in, internally will show up externally or in, in some way, shape or form. And I, I had a, a, uh, a clinician I really respect on the podcast a little while ago, John Fredrickson, and we talked about how life is a bit of a catastrophe, even under the best of circumstances. Yeah. And we will substitute sort of connection with that reality with illusions, delusions, treatment programs through buying stuff yeah. and this and that. And you meant, you mentioned worldwide depression. I mean, I can't help but think that it's the, it's the psyche withdrawing its support for the path that we're on, right? It, it sort of de-energizes the whole process and says, nah, I don't like what you're doing here. And I think a lot of us are afflicted by this. Definitely. I, I so totally agree. I, I just, I can't agree more with you. Um, and it's that on some level, it's the, also the authenticity, you know, of, like, I want to know you as you are, not as your CV or, you know, what you want to project. And I'm actually much more likely, you know, this is the old adage in journalism and in, in storytelling and in writing, people are interested in people. And I'm much more interested in, in people who, you know, share their, their difficulties and their challenges and how they overcame them and what happened than those who don't. And it's not that you need to spill everything, but it's, it's the, the, again, I think that, you know, coming as you are and living kind of honestly in the world and being true to yourself and to the world 
Because I think the other problem is if we don't deal with trauma, of course, we may take it out on other people. And that's not right either. You know, there's that saying, hurt people hurt people. And I think there's a there's a lot of truth to that. And often there's not the intention to do that. But again, we have these unconscious patterns that we engage in and we perpetuate patterns from our own life and childhood and our adult relationships. And that's a perhaps this is aligned with Sisu, but you know, I often talk with clients about finding strength in their vulnerability yes. as opposed to as opposed to sort of being fragile but very guarded. It's very it's very different, right? So people can look very strong on the outside, but if it's to guard against fragility, you know, that's something very different than having that strength and vulnerability, uh, which I think is what you're talking about. It's exactly what I'm talking about, and so many people that I've interviewed, uh, including the the leading expert the Sisu expert, Amelia Lahti, who is actually a survivor of domestic violence. Her strength has, a lot of her strength has come from those experiences, but dealing with them, but also wanting to help others. And then also her path to study and research um, Sisu in an, in an academic environment. And really that I think is so true that the, the strength comes from the vulnerabilities and the difficulties and the challenges and dealing with them, trying to overcome them, navigating them, and rather than brushing, trying to brush them under the carpet. And of course, it's easier to be vulnerable when you are in a society that is relatively safe, let's say, across, across the board, right? That, that might be something that Finnish culture has going for, or Finnish society, I should say, has going for it, where people can establish that inner internalized sense of safety because they've been able to have positive experiences uh, as they take chances throughout life. And it's not been met with malevolence or, you know, uh, violence, things like that. Yeah. I think, I mean, of course, not everything is perfect here and not everybody is, is that way, but I do think that there is a level of honesty and sometimes bluntness. People will be very forward <laughs> Yes. And yes. And, but at the same time, that is part of, you know, when I go, for example, for my morning swims, I see a lot of people that I know. And then I, sometimes there's someone I don't know. And sometimes there's the most intimate conversations, you know, somebody will just start talking about something that has happened or they're, they want to share, or, you know, there's a political story or something that has happened in the news. And that always, I find that very interesting because it's this contradiction. Finns are not known for being small talkers yet. You'll be talking about how to fix the world or, you know, someone's health problems and on the dock in your swimmers and you don't even know the person, you know, but, it, but it's this very authentic, real conversation that has nothing to do with, you know, materialism or, you know, other kinds of pretending to be a certain way or it's like, this is who I am. Yeah, as a relatively sort of chatty North American, uh, I must say I was struck by sort of the relative, uh, I'm going to say introversion, but I don't think that's exactly the right word. It's something a little bit different than that of the, the Finnish culture. A couple of little anecdotes. I remember going for uh, a run in the morning uh, and in Canada, you know, typically when you pass another runner, you'll just do like a little mini <laughs> mini wave, right? Yeah. Or, or say good morning or whatever. And I would do this on my runs and, you know, I was met with a sense of like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> Yeah, there's very much, um, I think it is, I think this is a country of introverts if we're going to generalize, but I think it's also about a kind of social norm, which is that you respect other people's space and privacy. Yes. Yeah. And you don't, you don't, you don't enter it if you don't know them. Um, I think 
that still holds true. And I think it depends where you live because the other weekend I was in a smaller town uh, on the coast and there they have a habit of greeting everybody. And so I think it depends on where you are, but also, you know, if it's a small community, but also I think the pandemic has slightly changed things too, that a lot of people are more, they appreciate other people more and, and just, you know, normal thing like being able to go for a walk or a run. But yeah, I still have to edit myself because my, when I head out for a walk, my instinct is to say hi to everybody or like, or just smile or whatever. And it's like, yo, yeah, that's not the, that's not the cultural norm here. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very interesting. And I certainly get the underlying uh, idea around it. Um, I want to dwell back into some of these active ingredients of the Finnish lifestyle, uh, just because I think it's important to talk about them. Uh, you had mentioned the uh, sort of cold treatments, right? Like ice bathing, uh, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, for anyone who wants to try this, I mean, you've done a nice job of laying this out and you talked about the hormonal benefits and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Is there any tips that you would pass along to anyone who wants to try this uh, for themselves? Like, Would a cold shower do it? Are there ways of replicating this for folks who don't have access necessarily to a frozen lake, river, or, or sea? Yeah, definitely. Um, cold showers, I find they're not as effective because it's that that immersion that really does the trick. But there is... There was a study done on on the benefit of cold showers, and it did suggest that there was a benefit to people who suffered from depression, but it wasn't a conclusive, it was a scientific study, um, but it wasn't conclusive. They couldn't say for sure that it, it had a, an impact, but you know, this it's the same idea that the cold triggers all kinds of positive responses in your body. And even though it feels uncomfortable, once you step out, you, you know, your body is still tingling you, it starts to warm up. Um, so I think that definitely cold showers. I do know, although I recommend, you know, nature, <laughs> I do know that there are places with cold tanks. Um, I don't know in North America, like I know cryotherapy has been somewhat popular. Um, we, all the swimming pools, the public swimming pools in Finland, most of them have a cold dipping pool, like a small pool that's like about eight degrees so that you can practice during the, uh, or if you don't want to go outside. Um, If you're trying it for the first time, I think it's really important to make sure you do it. If you're going somewhere in nature, that it's a safe environment Um, because we kind of have all the systems here. So we know, especially if you're doing it there, there are associations where they have, you know, they have a heated mat that goes to the dock. There's lights. um, There's a, a place to change and have a shower and a sauna so that you can warm up afterwards. Um, but I think the important thing is to make sure that you go with a friend, make sure you don't have any kind of a heart condition. That seems to be the only real uh, kind of general no-no. Like this is not for people who, you know, have some sort of a heart condition because the shock is so great. But otherwise, um, essentially, if you do try it in the winter, uh, I've done it in the wintertime in Vancouver. And what I've done is I, I have a wool hat to keep my hat head warm or a toque as they say in Canada. And I have these neoprene slippers that are the same kind that divers use or people who spend a lot of time on the beach. And some people use neoprene uh, diving gloves so that because it's your extremities, your fingers and your toes that get really cold and where you really feel the cold and go in 
for a very short period of time, the first time and, and don't force it. You know, it does the first time can feel awful, especially if the water is like, let's say one to four degrees Celsius. Um, and you don't really get the benefit until you come out of the water, you know, and your body is tingling and you suddenly feel like totally energized and like you can do anything and make sure that you have, you know, a place like you can change into dry clothes, you have warm clothes. And some people will have like a thermos with say warm juice or water. Um, what I do when I go in, in the really cold months is uh, I just find I'm really thirsty. So I have a, a water bottle with me. Um, and, but you know, the key is that you're able to warm up afterwards if it's really cold you know, so that you don't stay in that state of kind of pre-hypothermia. Um, yeah, and especially if you're not used to it, it can be a real shock and, and something that takes time to get used to. And then what a lot of people do here in Finland is if they're thinking of starting up winter swimming or cold water swimming, they'll start, you know, kind of towards the end of the summer, going swimming in a lake or the sea when the water's like right now, the water's about 22 degrees Celsius, which for Finland is pretty warm. That's the Baltic Sea in Helsinki right now. And they'll start going in the end of the summer and continue in the fall as the water temperature starts dropping. Um, to, you know, 15, 14, so on. And according to at least the scientific research that I've come across in the interviews that I've done is as soon as it's 10 degrees Celsius or colder, you're getting all the, the benefits of so-called cold water swimming. And then they'll just continue swimming through the autumn and build up their resistance, build up their CISO, their resilience, so that when they do go for the, the first dips in uh, quite cold water, they've already built up a bit of a, uh, a thicker skin as it were, and it doesn't feel as cold. And uh, so that would be my, my advice. And I've also noticed that there seems to be a boom in the popularity of cold water, open water and winter swimming around the world. So there are associations uh, and places where you can go and other people that you can go with. And I think that's really important. It's not something I would recommend for somebody to try by themselves the first time on there, you know, it, that, that's not, that's not healthy and that's not safe. Yeah, no, agreed. We are very privileged to have a, uh, a family cottage that we can access. And I, we, we have a sauna in the, in the cottage and I've gone down to the lake, I think as late as November uh, this year, because it, the, the winter was very late coming. Yeah. And from a safety perspective, what I realized is like, I always hold on to the ladder because you don't realize how quickly your muscles stop working yeah. when you're immersed in that cold water and it, it would not take long before they stopped working basically. I think that's a really good uh, piece of advice as well is because especially if you're not used to it, the shock can be overwhelming, you know, whether it's <gasps> and your muscles. Yeah. So that's really good is to hold on to the ladder, to go down like very slowly and then to continue breathing, like try to maintain a, a healthy controlled breathing. Yeah. So I think, you know, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the sauna a little bit. So, of course, sauna is a national fixture of Finnish culture. You can't seem to go anywhere without finding one. Even student dorms, I understand, have, you know, uh, sauna built in. A museum we went to had a whole display on this. It was, you know, very fascinating. Can you speak to the importance of sauna to the Finns and maybe about some of the therapeutic effects that sauna has on, uh, you know, inflammation, well-being, things like that? Yes. Well, essentially the, the, the sauna is, you know, been around 
for as almost as long as Finns. Well, that's not quite true, but um, it used to be that that was the place where babies were born because it was the most sterile place. Um, and often people who were building a farmhouse would build the sauna first, you know, because it's a sacred it's sacred, but it's also a place of well-being, a place to go and relax. Um, and it's so central to Finnish well-being and culture that it's, uh, I think there's about, estimates vary, but it's about 3.3 million saunas in a country of 5.5 million people. And uh, it re recently became a UNESCO, um, I believe, cultural heritage it received the recognition that it, this is really something unique. So essentially the sauna is um, a steam bath, a finished steam bath where you can either have an, uh, one that's electric or one that is wood heated, the old fashioned kind. And it's about, I would say 80 degrees is, is about the average. Some people like it hotter. And of course the heat goes up when you pour water onto the rocks. There's sort of a small, either wood burning, wood burning stove or something with an electric one with rocks on it. And the idea is you go in there uh, literally to, to relax, to cleanse uh, both your body and your mind and uh, sweat away your worries. Um, it has numerous scientifically proven health benefits. Um, you know, it's good to go for regular sauna because it gets you sweating and excuse me, that sweating process is good for the whole body. You know, the, the circulation, your, your blood circulation, um, relaxes the muscles, um, these kinds of things. But it's also culturally the kind of thing that you'd be very hard pressed to visit Finland and not be invited to have a sauna. Um, it's very common. Like if you're going to someone's cottage or house, even for supper, um, that if it's on the weekend, for example, it'd be very common that, oh, you know, we'll have sauna and then we'll have supper. Uh, it's part of the, the socializing, the relaxing. And of course, if you feel uncomfortable, you can, you can put a towel around yourself or, or wear your swimmers. But the idea is traditionally men and women go separately, but that they go naked and there's absolutely, there's nothing weird about it. It's, uh, it's also a great way to get to know people because, you know, everything is left behind and you go right to the conversation, you know, you talk about everything and it's a place, I think, you know, people don't argue, uh, it's a place of acceptance, you know, so you can talk about anything, but the idea is that you listen to other people's points of views. And, um, I would like to tell you uh, about the health. I actually have a list of health benefits if I can find them. I'm not sure if you want to hear them or do you want to get do you want to get really medical? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it would be, uh, I mean, I'm a huge advocate of the sound. I, I love using it. I use it as much as humanly possible. And I think one of the, one of those special experiences that I had in Finland was being in a so-called smoke sauna. Oh where, yes. Where we, it was a traditional sort of, you know, basically there's a giant fire on the inside and uh, we actually cooked dinner in there prior to going in. Yeah. And then we went in, it was like 110 degrees, according to the, like it was, we had to be putting ladles of water on ourselves the entire time. And then we'd jump in the Baltic. And I think we did that four or five times. And I could not have felt better as a human being after multiple. And that seems to be where the magic is, right? The alternating between the hot and cold. But yeah, no, I'd love to, long story short, I'd love to hear about the, uh, the health benefits that, uh, that are conferred by sauna. Because I, I think there's something very special there. 
Yeah. And I think that's something really important that you pointed out too, is we, we usually, and of course, during the pandemic, a lot of public saunas were closed for, for health reasons uh, to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Um, but yes, that is the traditional way year round uh, to enjoy sauna is if you have lakeside or seaside access, uh, many saunas are close to the water is, you know, you go and you have a good sweat and then you go into the water and you freshen up and you get that cold, depending on what time of year it is, that cold rush. And then you go back into the sauna and, and back into the water. And you really, it's like the ultimate kind of spa, natural spa experience, because you're relaxing, you're chatting with friends, you're in nature. You're also, because of the steam, you know, it, it relaxes your muscles and, you know, helps your breathing and a whole variety of things. You're, it's like getting a massage. I, I liken it to that. Like if you have tired muscles, whether you've been exercising or, you know, like you've come from a bike ride or, or something, or you've had a really stressful day and you can feel the tension, you know, in your, in your muscles, it just lets them go. And, and there's also a lot of uh, documentation about, you know, the benefit of alternating hot and cold. And you are essentially getting kind of a well-being workout at the same time, but it, it doesn't feel like a workout because you're not, it, it's not like you're doing push-ups or, you know, sit-ups or things like that. Um, so I think that's really important. I'm just going to quickly um, find you because I do have a, a, a section here that lists, I can just quickly uh list the benefits of the sauna if yep. i can find yeah so basically this is according to the finnish sauna society and this is this is based on research and studies it's not just you know what feels like this so the health benefits of the sauna include soothing and relaxing tired muscles relieving tension and mental and physical fatigue improving circulation lowering blood pressure affecting better and more restful sleep, increasing resistance to illness, maintaining clear and healthy skin and removing toxins and impurities. And there have also been some studies that have shown, um, not just in Finland, but in other, in Germany and in the UK that have shown that regular sauna sessions can decrease the chances of catching cold or flu by 30%, I think because it builds up your resistance. And one study actually found um, a study of middle-aged men in 2016 carried out uh, in Finland and in Bristol found that moderate to frequent sauna bathing was associated with lowered risks of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. What's not to love? I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, I mean, it sounds like it, and I think you allude to this, it basically exerts a, a form of stress upon the body of which a number of adaptations are sort of prompted as a function of that, which are actually really, you know, quite healthy at the end of the day. Yeah. And, and actually cross adaptation is one of the ways to improve your stress resistance to other stressors. So I think that that is a very CISO quality. It's like, I'm going to improve my, my resilience, my resistance, my CISO by doing something that, although it feels relaxing and nice is actually, it is somewhat of a stressor on, on like physiologically. I absolutely love it. As I mentioned uh, near the top of our conversation, uh, again, I really feel that near or total 24 daylight is something that everyone should, should experience. It, it's, it's so interesting. 
And I remember being in Helsinki, I think in early July, and uh, it was after a wedding actually. And I think it was like four in the morning, we were walking around downtown and it was like Saturday afternoon, uh, yeah. you know, in the Byward Market here in Ottawa. You know, it, it was, you would never have known, right? It was so interesting. And I remember feeling almost kind of, you know, really energized, almost hypomanic in a sense, right? Like 10 o'clock would roll around. We were all done dinner. I'm like, what, what am I going to do now? Oh, I'm going to go fishing. You know, and then, and then, so like there was an endless sort of platform to kind of do things because the light was around all the time. So, you know, uh, of course, the flip side of that is winter is very dark. And so how do Finns sort of think through the light dark? How much is that baked into the national mindset and, and how much is the rhythm of life organized around light? Uh, that's another excellent question. I think that because of the extremes of light, I think it gives you a, an appreciation for light that is totally different than if you lived somewhere where there were less um, huge dramatic differences. In the wintertime, for example, during the very cold, dark months where there's only a few hours of sunlight, you'll, you'll see this phenomenon where the sun comes out on a Saturday for a few hours and every single park, seawall, everywhere, is just packed with people walking and, you know, spending time outdoors, taking in, you know, the four hours of light that there is. And, and then, of course, in the summertime, it, there's this huge appreciation, you know, because it is a relatively short summer in terms of right now, the sun's setting around 11 and rising around four. And a lot of people take all of July off Um to appreciate and enjoy, you know, the warm weather and the light and the summer. And I think that that's partly because of the way uh, the Nordic system is built that, you know, you need to have rest time and downtime to, you know, you need to play or rest in order to work hard. But I think it is also the, the, the reality that because of these extremes, um, there's so many more things you can do and you can appreciate you know, being outdoors, because you know, like when it's minus 10 or minus 20, you don't spend that many hours outdoors. And it's usually doing something physical because you, you don't stand around on the spot. <laughs> it's very cold, you know, and also dark. Um, so I think that it's also a kind of sisu in that it's like, okay, let's appreciate this now because we don't know what's going to come. We don't know if there's going to be a really brutally cold winter or, or even a dark winter where there's not so much sun. And I think that that idea of kind of living in the moment and, and appreciating things, appreciating the light as much as the dark. I mean, there's a lot of things that happen during the winter months where people maximize, you know, snow by skiing or, you know, winter swimming um, or whatever they are, all kinds of making like ice lanterns out of frozen water, you know, and, and, you know, doing things that, okay, this is how it is now. Let's have a light festival because it's really, really dark and uh, that kind of thing. Um, but I do think it affects the mindset. And there are a lot of people who suffer from SAD, from seasonal affective disorder. And there are also um, a lot of, for example, people have these bright lights that they use for light therapy um, because it is so dark in the winter. And a lot of people do say that it affects them. And there's often advice in the newspapers and, and, you know, media, social media everywhere about things you can do when there is this really dark time and you just feel like you want to pull the covers over your head and hibernate and wait until, you know, the light comes. And 
So it's, it's not all, you know, rosy and happy and skiing. But again, I think it's a question of accepting, okay, this is how it is. And so what, what do you do? Okay. Well, you, you know, you get a lot of lights, you make sure you get out when there are those few hours of sunlight during the dark time. And I think there are also the national character. There's like winter fins and summer fins. And I think they're slightly different people. And I mean, they're the same person or the same people, but I find people are much more friendly and easygoing during the summer than they are in the winter. <laughs> and I think that that is partly a reflection of the light and the conditions. I mean, I think Canadians on some level are afflicted by some of the same dynamics, right? I've, I've noticed come, come March, at least in Ottawa, yeah, you know, <laughs> people are in a bad mood, you know, drivers on the road are irritable. There's very little patience, but you know, when that first spring day hits, you know, like it's like you, it's like a collective euphoria that everyone sort of taps into and everyone's in a good mood. And I, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of that saying, uh, you know, people should spend time in New York, but not so long before before they become too hard. Yeah. People should also spend time in LA, but not too long before you get too soft. Yeah. <laughs> it, but it almost seems like that, you know, that with the light in Finland, you get the boast of both worlds. Like there's a little bit of suffering you need to endure that makes the light all the more sweet, but you don't get to revel in that forever. Then you have to go back. Like it's like this almost like nice, nicely built in sauna cycle, uh, but you know, transposed onto, onto light. Yeah. And I think the other thing is that, you know, on, if I'm going to generalize, I think people in Finland are very in tune with nature. So there was all kinds of rituals that have to do with different times of the year. Uh, so, you know, embracing fall so you can go mushrooming and foraging and, and you know, those kinds of things. And, and it's a different kind of forest than the summer forest or the winter forest. And having all these different kinds of nature-related activities that I think also help people get through the difficult times. I mean, when it's sleeting and it's dark, it's cold and it's like, okay, uh, this is really challenging. Uh, and again, those can be simple things, for example, like well-maintained bike paths that are cleared of the snow. So it's faster to bike somewhere. And that can actually be a magical experience when it's minus 10, um, because you see and hear and feel totally different things than you do on a hot, sunny day. Yeah, winter biking has become quite popular here as well. Uh, we have so-called fat bikes that people use with these big giant tires and uh, they go head off into the forest. I, I'm quite a, a avid mountain biker. I've never tried it myself, but uh, it's become hugely popular to the point where you can't even buy a, a fat bike right now because they're they're consistently out of stock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, yeah. I think also cycling addresses so many um, issues facing us. It's it's like the solution to a lot of problems and, you know, in terms of health problems and other problems, but it's also in Helsinki, it's way faster for me to bike most places than any other way of getting around. And I think the pandemic, I don't know if it's the same. I haven't seen the statistics for Canada, but in Finland, there was a real increase um, because that was one of the, the safer ways to get around, you know, when people were avoiding, uh, public transit or places where there are a lot of people and, uh, plus it's, I mean, it's very green, uh, it's a, it's a free workout and, uh, you're in, again, you're in the world rather than being separated from it, you know? So whatever the weather yeah. is, the scenery, you can stop and chat with a friend, it's not exactly the, from a commuting perspective, but outdoor sports have exploded here during the pandemic. 
trails that I used to access and frequent are rammed and they used to be desolate. You know, there'd be, there'd be nobody there trying to buy cross country skis or, you know, a local bike shop told me the other day that, you know, you'd be waiting two years, you know, you place an order now and the bike will show up in two years, you know, just, and that's partly supply chain, but it's also uh, demand. I mean, everybody it's been, and I hope we retain this as a society that families have gone all in on these outdoor activities together because it, well, frankly, there's been nothing else to do, but I, I hope we hang on to that for all the reasons that you're, uh, that you're talking about. Yeah, I hear you. Cause I really think nature, um, answers a lot of addresses, a lot of what's ailing us, you know, as, as a, as a, a world, you know, I, these problems are very, it's not just in one country, but the same thing in Finland, there was a huge surge, um, the forests and the national parks, nature has always been popular, but, uh, there was a real boom during the pandemic, um, people who had forgotten about nature and the forests and trails and parks found them again. And uh, I, yeah, I think it's great. And there's all the spill-off benefits, not just for health, um, but, you know, for a kind of common sense of caring about the environment. And, you know, if you, for example, if you hike in forests or um, swim in, in, you know, lakes and seas, you suddenly become more aware about keeping them clean and, you know, not wanting to pollute and uh, thinking about all sorts of things that maybe didn't cross your mind when you weren't like a heavy nature user. Absolutely. I mean, find me someone who does, you know, who doesn't feel absolutely wonderful after spending an hour in the forest and I'll, you know, I'll give you a hundred bucks. Like it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it just doesn't happen. Right. So, you know, a, a walk in the woods is incredibly restorative. There's this idea, this concept of soft fascination, which has been really bubbling up quite a bit now where this, this restorative sort of effortless attention that is evoked by nature can really restore our cognitive capacity and sense of well-being. And especially in a time where we spend far too much time in a digital online world and to just the the research has shown too that even 15 minutes of walking in a green space is enough to, you know, boost your mood, have well-being like physical well-being benefits um because it's so very simple but the things that we forget to do, you know, like you said, soft fascination, to stop, to walk, to breathe, to go offline, to take that gadget out of our hands. And it's free. (laughs) It's there. You know, it's like easy. It's accessible in most places. Absolutely. Katia, this conversation has been so much fun. I've really enjoyed it. And I would love to touch base with you when your new book comes out. I think there's lots to to follow up. Uh, Where can people find you? Basically, I think Instagram is the best place right now. I mean, I I am in other places, but I I find uh, I'm a big proponent of kind of solutions journalism that's looking for positive answers to the things that the challenges we all face. And I find Instagram quite positive. I find Twitter tends to be a lot of people shouting at each other. And uh, my other platforms are they need to be updated. <laughs> They're very out of, uh, I've had a bit much work on my plate, but Instagram is where I like to go and uh, just be positive <laughs> and share pictures of nature, Helsinki, well-being, sustainability, and other topics. Wonderful. Well, I hope we'll all inject a little Sisu into our lives after this conversation. It's such, a, such an endearing concept and uh, I think really valuable. Thank you so much for spending the time with me today. And, and again, I would love to chat uh, in the future when your book comes out and follow up and drill down a little bit more on some of the stuff we've talked about today. Thank you. It was my pleasure and I'd love to talk to you again. Great. Thanks so much. Take care. You too. 
Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.